Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. This is part two of the conversation I had with Tenzin Priyadarshi on 7-28-2020 as part of the Stanford Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education Conversations on Compassion. I hope you enjoy. You remember the time when we were in Cape Town with, with Arch, with, yes. uh, with uh, Archbishop Tutu, and you remember this uh, funny interaction because, of course, you know, South Africa denied visa to his holiness, and so he wasn't there in person. And Archbishop Tutu, being Archbishop Tutu, uh, you know, asked, asked the Dalai Lama, he says, uh, uh, your holiness, tell me something. You know, your English is not that good. <laughs> you can barely speak better English than I can. Why is it that people pay to listen to you? <laughs> No, and, and and this idea, this this joyful sort of thing that 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 emerged out of this interaction, that you recognize that yes, it's not about the words; it's about presence. Actually, that uh, time we spent together in Cape Town actually is really uh, one of my fondest memories. In fact, I was, I think, I sent you the picture of you and I sitting together in the the church where Arch uh, uh, gave a sermon at the time of his birthday. And uh, we were just sitting there with a, a couple hundred people just bathing in uh, the joy of his presence. But the other thing that I say in relationship to that comment is that these types of individuals, and I think you and I have also been together with Ama, the hugging saint, as yeah. well as his holiness, and some Dung Rinpoche and others, is that, you know, in modern society, we have a fear of authenticity. And as a result, oftentimes, we have this projection that we carry of how we want people to perceive us. And uh, whether it's based on uh, how holy you are, whether it's based on how many degrees you have, whether it's based on your position or your wealth, people carry that as a shield. And the thing I found is that when you're in the presence of an evolved spiritual leader is you don't have to carry that at all because in their presence, first of all, I would suggest that they can see you quite clearly. And what I mean by that is they can see your essence as to who you are and respond to that. And sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. But being embraced by an individual like that, suddenly you don't have the need to carry that. And the nature, and people don't understand, it takes a significant amount of psychic energy to maintain this projection versus sitting in the presence of someone and just being who you are with all the uh, uh, mistakes, with all the failings, with your humanity laid bare and still knowing in the face of that, that you deserve to be loved and that somebody, in fact, loves you in the face of everything, oftentimes, that we think causes us not to deserve to be loved. And I think that's one of the most extraordinary things. And I, and I think that for so many, once you've been in the presence or been in that situation, in some ways, it's almost addictive because when you're there, 
you're elevated, you're happy, you're joyous, and you do see the possibilities for yourself to be your best self and not a defined by your past or mistakes you've made. And so I think that's a very powerful aspect of this. No, I, and I think that's, that's part of the role of what a guru, you know, uh, traditionally is, you know, without all the cynicism around the term that, that, that exists today, uh, is that, you know, a guru is somebody who takes you away from darkness. And in the world that we are in today, we sit with a lot of darkness. Uh, we also sit with a lot of darkness of sometimes, you know, our, our, our misunderstanding of, of what it means to be human uh, altogether. And so when you're sitting with the, in the presence of a spiritual teacher, uh, they're able to show you what you are without this darkness, what you are uh, when you are self-illuminated, when you are in this, this state of love. But, you know, that is simply a finger pointing to the moon, right? That is simply an aspirational stage that tells you this is what you are truly if you get rid of the darkness. Then begins the spiritual work, then begins the effort where when we uh, start to work on ourselves to remove that kind of darkness and we go into the presence of such teachers time and time again simply to be reminded that we are not this finite, limited, dark self that we often imagine ourselves to be. And so, being in the presence of teacher, uh, it's, it's sort of this, this manifestation of this radical love and radical acceptance. You, you truly see what it means to be non-judgmental. Not non-judgmental in this facetious sense that we talk about these days in, in the mindfulness kind of thing that let's just sit for 10 minutes of non-judgmental self, but truly sort of understanding you know, what it means to accept all things as it is accept all things as they are. It doesn't mean that you don't encourage things to grow. You see, uh, you know, I can accept somebody, somebody can accept me as I am, but it doesn't mean that they're not encouraging me to grow, that they're not permitting me to grow. That should be a, actually an invitation uh, 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 to grow. And that's the beauty of this sense of spiritual acceptance that, that you find in the uh, company of such teachers. You know, one of, one of the spiritual friends and mentors that I mentioned in the book, Father Thomas Keating, uh, who, was, uh, who was also a remarkable persona. And, and we used to joke oftentimes, and I would say, oh, Father Thomas, you're so famous. You know? And he, he, would, he would laugh and he say, he would say, Venerable Tenzin, I'm not famous. It's who they think I am is famous. <laughs> and it's, it's this remarkable thing, you know, that I'm not famous. It's who they think I am is famous. And Father Thomas Keating, just like His Holiness, had this beautiful sense that he could meet people wherever they are, as they are. Uh, and, and never ever did I hear him utter something negative or something judgmental about an individual that he had met. Like, even, even I would have reservations about meeting somebody, and he would be like, no, let's meet them and see what they have to say. And then he would offer some encouraging words, some kind words. But it's, it's this beautiful reminder that a guru, uh, a, a true teacher, is sitting with this field, so to speak, of, you know, like a magnetic field, like a spiritual field of radical love and radical acceptance that provides you, even for moments, this 
beautiful invitation to, to step away from darkness and to see what you yourself and what, what, what the world would look like in light. And then we just need to put ourselves on the right effort. Well, I think that's one of the challenges for so many of us. And it's interesting, you, meet, you mentioned Father Keating and you mentioned uh, spiritual materialism. I think that we see oftentimes this feeling that, you know, my path is the right path, or if you do what I tell you to do, or if you follow this. And, you know, I cannot tell you the number of times individuals have come to me and told me that they're on their second or third 10-day Vipassana retreat. And I look at them and I said, well, you know, by the mere fact that you've mentioned that to me, indicate you've ne- learned nothing during your retreat. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, and, and, you know, it seems so, uh, you know, commonplace sometimes because, uh, you know, people want to show you that uh, they're on this path, but they have to repeatedly keep telling you they're on this path And, you know, one of the things I've certainly found is that if you have to tell me, then you're not on the path because your actions are the manifestation of being on the path. True, true, true. I I think, you know, that's uh, one of the challenges that that, uh, we are seldom able to overcome this uh, circuitry, you know, this this sort of... uh, primitive circuitry of, of seeking validation, you know. If you really think of spiritual practice, it is to overwrite that circuitry, you know. A good teacher is never there to validate your experience. A good teacher is never there to validate your path. You get validated when you are there. You see, uh, you, you're not constantly seeking validation by mentioning to people, as I said, you know, this consumer mindset that I have done this so many times whether it's the Vipassana retreat or the number of years spent somewhere, or my favorite, which is in the U.S., which is, uh, uh, you know, that shows up that uh, has been teaching for 30 years or has been practicing for 50 years. You know, if you know anything about the spiritual world or if you know anything about the thing, 30 years of practice or 50 years of practice means nothing. It's lifetimes of practice. In lifetimes of practice, to say something like, oh, I've been practicing this for 50 years, means nothing. In fact, you might be setting yourself for disappointment if you say that I've been practicing for 50 years and, and where are the accomplishments and where are the attainments. And, 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 you know. So this, this idea that, that we have kind of uh, you know, making the sense that time actually means anything in, in, in these kinds of things, you know? that, that when, when you are on the path of discipline and when you're on the path of discipleship, time and space doesn't matter, you see, and, and, and we should not use it as a way to talk to ourselves about, uh, about accomplishment in that regard. Well, I think the other aspect uh, that relates to this is, and I'm sure you've had this experience, some of the wisest, and if I can use the term enlightened, Although, uh, you know, some people will say if somebody tells you they're enlightened, you should turn in the opposite direction and run as far away as you can. But in my own experience, uh, the, some of the wisest, most profound interactions have been with individuals who have 
no currency in the world of promoting their own wisdom. They oftentimes are extraordinarily humble, and you suddenly realize the profound nature of who they are if you just sit with them for a period of time. When I was in college, I used to work in a liquor store. I'll tell you the story very briefly. And every day, a fellow would come in and buy a quart of vodka. And I was probably self-absorbed and selfish and uh, judgmental. And I would make fun of this individual sometimes. And one day, he confronted me. And he said, who are you to say anything about me and why I do what I do when you know nothing of me? And he Mm -hmm. was absolutely correct. And he quickly put me in my place, not in a mean sort of way, but in a way which made me step back and to see my own failings in terms of judging people my perception of the world, my perception of my elevated position in the world, at least as I saw myself. And the story that ended up him telling me was that he had actually been a professor and his wife had died of cancer, then his daughter was killed, and it took him uh, down this path. Uh, But... I had made these judgments about him. Now, the interesting thing was that this then led to an ongoing series of conversations. Each day he came in to buy his vodka. And over those months, I learned a great deal about him, his wisdom, and about myself, and learned several lessons. But the interesting thing was that over that period of time, he went from a quart of vodka to a pint of vodka to little airplane bottles of vodka. <laughs> it <totally laughs> by, <laughs> he didn't buy vodka at all, but would just come in and talk to me. And uh, the extraordinary gift of that interaction was he taught me an extraordinary amount, but the other side of it was by doing so, it allowed him on some level to heal. Human beings' lives are quite complex and and we all play all kinds of roles in each other's lives. You know, and that's one of the beauty even in Buddhist tradition when you look at it, that there shouldn't be a sense of absolutism about a teacher. A teacher is also a student and a student is also a teacher. And this relationship sort of constantly evolves over a period of time uh, as we continue to learn from each other. I do want to mention, though, um, you know, because we are talking a lot about judgment and non-judgment and so on, is that, you know, there's a distinction between judgment and discernment. And discernment is a spiritual faculty. It's a spiritual faculty in the sense that it is something that we must grow into. We must grow into this idea of how to discern things. You know, non-judgmental, the notion of non-judgmental in Buddhist tradition even, uh, was a practice. It was an exercise. The exercise whether we can suspend this bombardment of judgment always happening, the projections about other things, uh, 
uh, even for a period of time. But when you are in this world, you see, judgments happen. You cannot even do grocery shopping without having judgments of which fruits to buy, which vegetables to buy, and so on. Okay? Meaning the judgment is part of this evolutionary skill that, that, that we have sort of uh, learned. However, the problem is not judgment. The problem is blind judgment. The problem is judgment that is deeply rooted in our biases, the biases that go unchecked, um, uh, and so on. And so it's not to say that we all become rocks. Uh, it is simply to say that we move beyond this this blind judgment rooted in deep-seated biases to a level of discernment. Uh, and that's why spiritual path itself is a discerning path in, in the sense that it encourages that particular faculty. But uh, it's it's remarkable how many judgments are passed in a group of non-judgmental individuals. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I will let that sit as it is. But uh, I wanted to bring up a couple of things. Uh, one is, you know, when you talk about discernment, lack of discernment oftentimes is a manifestation of fear. And um, when you are in a fear mode or you don't feel comfortable, oftentimes uh, this stimulates your sympathetic nervous system and this results in you shutting down your executive control function. And I throw this out at you because if you don't have access to those parts of your brain associated with your executive control function, then it's very difficult to be discerning and thoughtful because you don't have those parts of your brain that would give you information about past experiences, thoughtfulness, creativity, and as a result, you start limiting your options. I think one of the very profound uh, statements that has been made, and this was by Viktor Frankl in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, is that between stimulus, which is how we react to individuals or events, between stimulus and response, how we respond to them is that pause and right. that pause uh, lies your freedom. And it's how you respond between those two events that yeah. uh, really is quite a powerful thing to learn. Maybe you can comment on that. No, he, he uh, Victor Frankl, I think he, he put it the best, um, uh, describing this, uh, this gap between uh, a reactive mind and a responsive mind. And you're right that, you know, when our mind is simply in a flight and fight mode, uh, in that kind of it's mostly reacting. It's uh, mostly reacting from this uh, instinctual framing, sort of almost very paleolithic uh, mindset. But I think it's important, I think, to understand, firstly, the, the importance of fearlessness, you see. That fearlessness is not a goal, that it is a process, that we need to recognize that when we begin to inquire into the nature of fear, Fearlessness is an important gift. You know, in Buddhism, we speak of three forms of generosity, the generosity of material things that we often experience, uh, then the generosity of teaching and counseling. And the third form of generosity is the generosity of fearlessness. The, I think the importance of being a safe haven or being a refuge for somebody or a group of individuals. And to be able to impart that sense of fearlessness so that we can become more attentive, more attuned to our other evolutionary functions. 
And so I think, you know, uh, it's an important thing that you have raised that, you know, when we are living in a society of paranoia, when we are living in this world today, uh, not just paranoia because of nature doing its thing like pandemic and so on, but uh, paranoia and fear with all the information around it, paranoia uh, and fear because of our own biases of how we treat each other and so on. It's very hard to make decisions that are good decisions. It's very hard to make wise decisions. And so even in this state of paranoia, to be able to enter moments of fearlessness, moments of experience of fearlessness in solitude, or being in conversation with somebody who's able to provide that sense of fearlessness, so that at least we can, you know, disconnect for a brief period of time, uh, you know, from this sort of reactive mind to be able to reflect and say, well, what would a decent response be? Okay. Uh, and this is something that, you know, we sort of uh, oftentimes hide behind all of our talk about rationality and rational behavior uh, and so on. You know, uh, most human choices are very irrational. You see? And the wisdom is in accepting that. The wisdom is in accepting that so that we can understand what's rational, what's emotional, whether uh, you know, that difference should even exist so that we can make better choices and better decisions, you know, and and, and uh, now is the time when, you know, with so much chaos all around us that we do need to make better choices and better decisions and it cannot be done in fear. So we need to sort of learn to step out of fear, but we cannot simply wait and say that there will come a time when society at large will become fearless. We all each need to become a safe haven for one another. I think that's exactly true. And if you want to carry your analogy uh, beyond darkness is fear, and it's how do you find light, which is love. And, you know, it's this bifurcation, which is a choice every day. And within each of ourselves, I think that one of the challenges is that so many people look outside themselves to find the answer or the solution. And I think there are two aspects of this. One is, and this in some ways relates to what we we're talking about, uh, spiritual uh, materialism, is, geez, if I can just show up at this event and in an hour or two or in a week or a month, uh, I'll have all the answers. No, of course, as you point out, uh, there are many lifetimes where people have lived, if you believe in reincarnation, who still don't have the answers. The other aspect is that believing that by grasping onto one of these things and hoping that that will be the answer causes suffering. Uh, attachment, craving only uh, cause suffering. And I think it is important that there is a lot of work within ourselves that will give us the peace which we seek. And when we can sit with that, then that makes us look at the world in a different way. And it, frankly, in a much more optimistic way. You know, you mentioned solitude. And obviously, in the times of the pandemic, you know, we're in the modern world or the Western world and, and uh, perhaps the entire world. You know, there's an epidemic of stress, anxiety, and depression. Frankly, uh, in many ways, I would suggest secondary to 
uh, ruthless capitalism. Uh, but regardless, the present situation in the world with the pandemic uh, has resulted in an exacerbation of this degree of suffering. And many people are isolated and feel alone. In terms of this contrast between solitude and loneliness, maybe you can give us some insights, uh, if you will. Well, thank you. I think it's an important thing, again, to make a distinction between solitude and loneliness. Solitude is a choice. It's a willful choice. Uh, Loneliness is generally uh, an imposition. It comes from certain kinds of feeling of alienation or experiences of alienation and so on. And solitude is, of course, a contemplative moment. It's a contemplative quality for an individual to deeply understand oneself. It's, It's an opportunity to sit with oneself and to sort of have this kind of quality conversation with ourselves, with, with our own self, uh, uh, so that we can know better, uh, you know, what choices, decisions are uh, informing uh, our life, its purpose, and so on. And loneliness is anything but that, uh, you know, uh, it, it doesn't have this fruitful quality of it. And, and that's one of the things that, that again, we have, to, we have to recognize that we are all driven by a sense of belonging. But we rarely understand what a healthy sense of belonging means, meaning, you know, we, we speak of spiritual communities, but formation of spiritual community is much difficult, more challenging than, say, formation of cults and gangs and spiritual groups. See, this is sort of the algorithm that, uh, you know, Facebook is exploiting so well, which is that it puts you in these kinds of interest groups uh, where you go without any kind of understanding of what it means uh, to be human, what it means to be spiritual, and so on. So this idea that while we are seeking this spiritual sense of belonging, we must sort of clarify to ourselves, what is it that we are bringing into this relationship? What is it that we are bringing into this, this, this form of community? So it doesn't become simply this, again, consumer mindset. You know, a spiritual community is not just a group of interest based individuals. In fact, in a good spiritual community, most people don't even agree with one another. You see? But what they do agree on is seeking reality. What they do, do agree upon is seeking truth. And in modern world, I think we have sort of exploited this desire for sense of belonging in so many ways that all it has done is that it has created more fragmentation. And it has created more fragmentation where, you know, you look at, for example, social media and algorithms. In principle, a wonderful tool to bring, again, the world together to provide the sense of belonging. In reality, it's sort of, you know, fragmenting us in the, you know, bringing out the worst of human behavior, the kind of polarized conversations, accusations that happen on each other. So it's a moment of reckoning for us as humans. To, to understand what does it mean to be in a healthy relationship? What does it mean to be part of a healthy community and a healthy sense of belonging? Tenzin, maybe you can share with our uh, audience what you were doing at MIT, uh, since you're the founder and director of the uh, Dalai Lama Center for Ethics and Transformative Values. And obviously, in the context of the pandemic, uh, that has changed some things, but what in regard to the work that you're doing uh, excites you and are there things that 
you would like to share that the center is doing that potentially uh, would be of interest to the audience? Certainly. I, I think, thank you for that. I, I think, uh, you know, the work of the center is, is inspired by, of course, the vision of individuals such as uh, the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Tutu and others, uh, with the idea of, you know, not just blindly thinking that we should live in a more ethical world, but what conditions can we create, actively create, to create a more equitable, more just, more fair, more ethical world? And, uh, you know, one of the things that we, we, we as in a group of us discovered who are in higher education and in academia is that uh, while there is so much talk of absence of values and absence of character and absence of uh, principles of ethical decision-making, there weren't many courses or there weren't many things that were being taught around it. And so much of the center's work is around uh, understanding how, how humans learn about ethics and empathy. So we work with different demographics trying to foster that. You know, so simple thing is uh, today, you know, uh, we are seeing chaos for the unjust that, that's experienced by society for decades, if not centuries, that is manifesting itself in Black Lives Matter. And there's call, you know, for, you know, how police brutality is, how the behavior of the police forces and so on. And there's reality to that, and, and it's a very sorry state of, of any civic society. However, the key thing also is to look into, well, is there any kind of empathy training, any kind of compassion training, any kind of ethical decision-making training that we actually give to our law enforcement agents and agencies, meaning is it even part of their learning process? So this idea that we should dismantle institutions is not enough. We have to think about what was lacking in those institutions and, and how we can create more healthy institutions. And this is what where much of the center's work is, that, that we need to recognize that lack of empathy is a public health issue. And if it's a public health issue, we need to deal with it in the same manner. It cannot be dealt with just some fluffy talk on empathy and compassion. Yes, they can inspire individuals. But it is the work that is done by C-Care, it is the work that is done by the center, which is, you know, research-based interventions, and you design actual learning programs that people in civic society go through. Just like we learn any other skills, we should learn all these skills that we believe society is lacking and that we value the most. That's the work, uh, in a nutshell, that the center is doing, and uh, uh, in a very short span, it has expanded quite a bit. It operates in about 10 countries. But the expansion is simply a reflection of the need for such work. And I think that more and more people and institutions would see the relevance and importance of, of this and, and uh, continue to innovate in this particular field of, uh, uh, of ethics and empathy learning. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com. <laughs>